Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 141b, The Romans in Britain by Richard Norton, part 1. Once again everyone, hello and glad you're still listening. This sounds like David, but is in fact Richard. But before we go to Richard, as David, I'm afraid I have a confession to make. I've never had any great interest in the Roman period of history. There, I've said it. This is despite reading the Ladybird history book, which for once and once only failed to work its magic. It's not that I don't love Roman history. As I've said before, it was Mike Duncan's podcast that got me started on all of this, and Roman history is one of the greatest stories ever. But Roman Britain, in the words of Vicky, yarn so bored. Maybe because it was a small and rather irrelevant province in the Greater Empire. I don't know. And anything more I say will just display my ignorance even more. But let it suffice to say that when Richard here suggested he do a couple of episodes, I thought, yohoy, perfect, the gap is duly filled. So here we go. I've split it into two episodes, first this week and the second next. Enjoy. First of all, thank you to David for allowing me to do this episode. I find Rome unquestionably the most interesting aspect of history. It helps that with Rome lasting so long and changing so much, it has everything you could want. There are crazed emperors, brilliant generals, staunch republicans and loquacious senators. They rose to the heights of civilization while committing terrible atrocities. As much as I've grown to love British history, something I once found quite boring, everything in Rome is done on a bigger, grander scale. So, Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church? Well... What about the centuries-long prosecutions of Christians, followed by conversion, only to then immediately fall out on minor details, which eventually led to the Great Schism? The Hundred Years' War with great kings like Henry V and Edward II, a minor skirmish compared to the Punic Wars, with the Second Punic War fought between arguably the greatest military commanders of all time, Hannibal and Scipio Africanus. Anyway, this episode will focus on the Romans and their relationship with Britain. Gaius Julius Caesar. I came, I saw, I sort of conquered. 
Julius Caesar was such a man that the conquest of Britannia was merely a footnote in his story. Indeed, badly worth mentioning. Similarly, Britannia would always remain a minor part of the Roman Empire. In nearly 400 years as a province, it never produced a single native senator, while other provinces gave Rome some of its greatest emperors. And being from a far-flung corner of the empire was no barrier to achievement as the empire went on, with the Romans looking for talent wherever they could find it. Some have argued that some of the provinces, especially many in the east, were already part of the civilization as the Romans understood it. Some had civilizations that stretched far back longer than Rome, so it was a minor adjustment to doing things the Roman way. It was no surprise that a Greek could become a senator or that a Syrian understood philosophy. But the Britons? So why did Rome choose to conquer Britannia? Well, it was never really Rome that made this decision. It was Julius Caesar. For Julius Caesar, the answer would surely be because it was there and would impress people back home. Conquest was a reason unto itself for many Romans. And once Rome had staked a tentative claim to the island through Julius Caesar's tiny invasion force, they then had to conquer it. In the last years of the Republic, Roman generals seemed intent on picking fights with people solely to win glory for themselves. The direct interests of the Republic were of secondary importance. Such a system couldn't go on forever, but at the time, conquering Britannia would compare well with the other great achievements of the age. Caesar hadn't asked for permission from the Senate to carry out this invasion. He simply went and did it. The later years of the Republic are particularly fascinating as the political competition in Rome seemed to give rise to great men fighting for power, a kind of hothousing that led to a lawyer like Cicero standing up against a general like Mark Antony and for a time beating him. It's hard to imagine any other time, except perhaps in the last century or two, when such a confrontation would not have immediately have been settled in the general's favour. It was during Caesar's pacification of the Gauls that he first looked across the channel to Britannia and decided that such a small obstacle as a stormy body of water couldn't stop him. Caesar had every right to be confident. He'd recently conquered Gaul and as part of the triumvirate effectively ruled Rome. His star was very much on the rise. Again, showing his never-ending lust for war and glory in a few years, Caesar would have started the civil war that would leave him the sole master of Rome. Initially, Caesar claimed that the Britons were giving aid to rebellious Gauls. Note that only a few years earlier, we would just be calling them Gauls. It was Rome that had labelled them rebellious. And that the Gauls were sheltering those who had fled Roman justice, but this was clearly just an excuse to get involved with Britannia. Caesar's initial invasion in 55 BC went very badly, and he managed to land on the southeast coast of England with only a small force. Bad weather had stopped most of his army making the landing, and much to the amusement of the locals, he started making grandiose claims about the power of Rome. Some battles were fought, hostages were taken, and it's true that the Romans would be considered the winner of these battles, but they were hardly the kind of victories Caesar was already accustomed to. Caesar quickly scurried off back to the relative safety of Gaul, but returned a year later in 54 BC with a far more impressive force, five legions plus cavalry and auxiliaries. Auxiliaries being those non-Roman soldiers that didn't serve in the legions proper. 
the local Britons Caesar met probably were rowing the day. They let the ambitious Roman leave so easily last time, a thought many other men must have shared over Caesar's career. Caesar didn't so much conquer the island as have the island submit to very light Roman rule. So light, in fact, they quickly forgot the Romans actually ruled them at all. They landed in Kent, scored quick victories against the local Britons, who, like virtually every other barbarian, found the Romans overwhelming in a pitched battle. So great was the Roman threat that the British tribes began to combine their forces, and a Briton named Cassivellaunus was made leader of their cause. But Rome also managed to turn some tribes over to their side, in a land of tribal kings where there were numerous feuds and rivalries, and many would have hated Cassivellaunus a lot more than these Latin newcomers. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Our greatest advantage in coping with these tribes so powerful is that they do not act in concert. Seldom is it that two or three states meet together to ward off a common danger. Thus, while they fight singly, all are conquered. While Tacitus was referring specifically to the Britons, he could have been talking of any number of barbarian groups. The uniting of German tribes into larger confederations would be one of the key factors in the fall of Rome. This quotation was from the Agricola, Tacitus's history on a campaign in Britannia a bit later in Roman history. It also features one of the best quotations on the Romans you'll ever hear, supposedly stated by Britain. And where they make a desert... They call it peace. Throughout the campaign, the legions constantly demonstrated their superiority in battles, and unless the Britons could lure small groups into ambushes, they had little success. Inevitably, Cassivellaunus was forced to make peace, promising to respect Caesar's new British allies and delivering hostages and tribute. Satisfied he had a victory worthy of him, and not too concerned what happened with the island now, Caesar returned to Gaul. Caesar left Britannia with the entirety of his army, leaving not a single soldier behind and not making an attempt to actually conquer and hold the island. Undoubtedly, if Caesar's attention had been solely focused on Britannia, he would have finished the conquest there, but problems in Gaul needed attending to. Caesar seemed to have barely given Britannia a second thought, and who can blame him? He had a monumental legacy to build. Claudius. To many Romans, the Emperor Claudius probably only confirmed the downward trajectory of imperial statesmen. First there was the noble Augustus, intelligent, respectful to the Senate and supremely capable. Then the tyrant Tiberius, who only became more depraved as time went on. The dangerous madman Caligula and finally in 41 AD the fool, Claudius judged by many, including members of his own family, to be of absolutely no worth, and only became emperor as no one had thought him worth the trouble of murdering. But he would prove shockingly good at being emperor. The Roman Republic had effectively ended with Caesar defeating Pompey and the forces of the Senate, and with him being named dictator for life in 44 BC. After Caesar's death, there was a struggle for power which eventually saw the start of the Roman Empire under Emperor Augustus. Claudius's claim on power was shaky. Unlike most future Roman emperors, he had not had a successful career as a general. He hadn't even had a political career. His claim was based solely on familial ties. 
suffering from a stutter and other nervous tics and physical weaknesses, he'd never been a senator or general, and while he'd served as consul, this had only been one of Caligula's cruel jokes. So the Roman people needed some reason to respect and follow him. The way people reacted to illness and disabilities in the ancient world is very different to our modern view. These things were seen as punishment of the gods or revealing of inner weaknesses of character. They didn't show sympathy or empathy and would not think of trying to make anything easier for a person with these problems. Claudius's rise to power is rather bizarre. Related to the Emperor Augustus by blood through his mother and related to him by marriage, as his grandmother was Livia, Augustus's wife. The family tree of the Julio-Claudians is incredibly complicated, made even worse in that adoption into another family was common in Roman society. Due to his stutter and other problems, the typical career path of a prominent Roman, the Cursum Honorum, was denied to him, as it was felt he embarrassed the family, he did gain some respect from people in the excellent histories he wrote, and surprised some that with preparation he could be eloquent. Before becoming emperor, Claudius was often used as a pawn in other people's machinations, or simply snubbed as insignificant. His uncle, the emperor Tiberius, never for a moment considered naming him as his heir, instead choosing Caligula. When Caligula was assassinated, Claudius was one of the few male members of the imperial family still standing, and this simple fact was how he became emperor. If the people of the ancient world got together and compared the merits and achievements of their rulers, well-written, well-written histories were not as impressive as conquests or even political careers. Upon becoming emperor, Claudius therefore decided on a military campaign to give the Romans something to be proud of and since his other options would be fighting barbarian German tribes, dangerous, time-consuming, or taking on the Parthians, a rival civilization who could actually pose a threat to Rome, Britannia was his best choice. Not that Claudius would do any of this conquering himself. He was too old and had zero experience, but any triumph that resulted from the conquest would be his and used to bolster his credentials as a military leader. After all, Julius Caesar, the man who defeated so many huge opponents, had failed to properly conquer the island. What would it say about Claudius if he could do it? In between Caesar's victory and Claudius's invasion, Roman influence on the island had waxed and waned, and while the island was clearly not part of the empire, some of the kings of Britain were allies of Rome, that is, ally in a clearly subordinate role. Augustus, Julius Caesar's adopted son, his successor, and first emperor of Rome had sometimes considered another invasion. Again, it was more for reasons of image and politics than tactics or desire for riches. At this time, Augustus was in an uneasy alliance with Mark Antony, Caesar's closest friend, and so a prominent leader and general. Antony was a dashing military hero, while Augustus was a sickly noble, trading on the glory of Caesar's name so to properly finish the invasion would show Augustus's strength and that he'd truly earned the Caesar name. But Augustus was far too conscientious a ruler to focus on an unnecessary war while there was genuinely important work to be done. Caligula also considered invading the island, but taking all of Caligula's considerations seriously isn't a sensible thing to do. 
Caligula, by the way, is not his actual name, but the name he's known to in history. His name was Gaius, but there are so many people named Gaius in Roman history, attempting to always use their actual name would drive historians mad. Caligula was a nickname, meaning something along the lines of Little Boots. So a parallel to English history would be if Edward I was actually known as King Longshanks. This odd nickname came from when, as a child, Caligula had spent time with his father Germanicus on campaign. The child was given a replica uniform, including children's versions of the shoes worn by soldiers, and so little boots. I refer to this branch of boots, the chemist, near to where I live as Caligula, as it's a very small branch, which I think is structurally a perfect joke on Roman history, if not actually very funny. Caligula is always good for a laugh, providing you're viewing his antics from the safety of 2,000 years of history. To live through it would have been terrifying. With Britannia, he marched his legions to the coast of Gaul, and everyone expected an invasion. Instead, he demanded the soldiers collect the shells from the beach as his spoils of a war against Poseidon, god of the sea, and the shells were dutifully brought back to Rome. This is one of the more light-hearted tales of Caligulus's madness, and while he reigned for only four years before being assassinated, it's amazing he lasted that long. In fairness, it's possible that this is not what happened at the coast, or is an exaggeration, but it says something about the man that when being told about this, people responded, huh, so he declared war on Poseidon and collected seashells as plunder. Yep, that sounds like our emperor. It fell to Caligula's successor, his uncle Claudius, to finish the job. Claudius became emperor after Caligula was assassinated, supposedly found by the Praetorian Guard hiding behind a curtain. They elevated him to emperor. The Praetorian Guard were crack soldiers who served as the emperor's bodyguard or private army, and over time would prove themselves powerful kingmakers. While supposedly there to protect the emperor, they seemed to kill more than they saved. The invasion of Britannia began in 43 AD and was commanded by Aulus Plautius, a politician and general, although there's not much actual distinction between those two professions in Rome at this time. As Plautius gained victories, Claudius realised the PR potential of being present himself, and as such he led reinforcements to Britannia. It's possible his time spent in Britannia could be measured in days, and before long he was heading back to Rome, beating the messengers dispatched to the Senate to announce his success or conquest. Whether the war achieved all of Claudius's aims is debatable. While he may have taken credit for the victory, I'm sure many people simply thought that his capable generals had won the war. Many people still saw the emperor as a complete imbecile and assumed all his good work was the work of others. Claudius's reign was beset by assassination attempts and plots against him, as any number of senators in Rome and generals throughout the empire thought they'd make much better emperors. One of the most daring conspiracies against Claudius was orchestrated by his own wife. I doubt any of these would-be usurpers thought twice about their schemes because of the conquest of Britannia, and lay awake at night wondering if the Emperor Claudius, the scourge of Britannia, the man who bested Caesar, was coming for them. But still, Claudius managed to rule for 13 years, which is not a bad innings for a Roman emperor. Boudicca I think Boudicca is probably the most well-known Briton pre-Alfred the Great. Evidently, something about her struggle struck a chord with people. It's a curious characteristic of the British that often 
It is heroic defeats that resonate more than victories. Some of the most famous events in British history are defeats, retreats or disasters. I would argue that to most people, the charge of the Light Brigade is more famous than the Battle of Cressy or Poitiers, and the Duke of Marlborough, often thought to be Britain's greatest ever general, is not a well-known figure. Perhaps this is why Boudicca's doomed revolt against the seemingly invincible enemy is remembered so well. The controversial thing about Boudicca seems to be about how to pronounce and spell her name. I was brought up to say Bodicea, yet in recent years people tend to say Boudicca, and I'm happy to change the times. That said, I heard recently that Genghis Khan should actually be called Chinggis, and that may be more difficult to change. Boudicca was a native British queen. Her husband had been king of the Iceni, a tribe who lived in what is now Norfolk in the southeast of England. The Iceni were a tribe allied with Rome, and as already mentioned, being an ally of Rome didn't imply a partnership of equals, often it was the first step to becoming part of the empire. When the king died in 60 or 61 AD, he left his kingdom to his daughters, and to Rome equally. But there was trouble. The native Britons had no problem with women inheriting property and status, and we must assume the Iceni themselves were happy with the arrangement. But the Romans were not. They decided they were better placed than the previous king, his wife and family, and their people, to decide what happened, and they became involved. Roman involvement with barbarian tribes often meant violence rather than reasonable debate, and so the legions were called in. Boudicca was flogged by the Romans and her daughters raped, and yet the Romans would state that they were the civilised ones and the Britons barbarians. The Romans were completely surprised by the violent response from the Iceni. It seems a lesson little learned from history that brutal crackdowns often do not lead to meek, subservient subjects, but angry, united rebels. Boudicca rallied neighbouring tribes to her cause, damning the crimes committed by the Romans on a people who were, after all, their allies. Boudicca managed to raise a massive army, possibly a 100,000 strong, and attacked the Romans. She burned cities, putting Romans to the sword wherever they were found. The majority of the legions on Britain were dealing with problems in northern Wales and were not immediately at hand, and other military officials completely misjudged the scale of the revolt and didn't send adequate reinforcements. The town of Londinium, no surprises that this is modern London, was deemed indefensible to Boudicca's army and abandoned by the legions, and she burned it to the ground. The current emperor was Nero, Claudius's successor, and unfortunately very much a ruler in the model of Caligula. Weak, petty, incompetent and tyrannical, it's hard to decide who is worse, Caligula or Nero, and both would certainly come high on a list of the worst ever Roman emperors. A stranger to military action, he was not a man who, when faced with the rebellion, rallied his troops, stuck out his chest and fought. He was a man who looked for the easy option, and he considered abandoning the island completely. However, one of the great hallmarks of Rome, and the reason why it could have runs of useless emperors or years of little central authority and carry on nonetheless, was that it continued to produce capable men across the empire. The Romans were led by Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, another Gaius, governor of Britannia, and he rallied his legions and faced Boudicca. 
Some estimates say that by this time, Boudicca's army was over 200,000 strong, although such estimates should never be accepted at face value. But it's fair to say that Suetonius was hugely outnumbered, with only 10,000 men at his command. But despite this disadvantage, Suetonius led his troops to a crushing victory, again proving the strength of Rome's disciplined, well-trained soldiers. Boudicca's fate is a little murky. Escaping the battle, she either killed herself so as not to fall into Roman hands, or died of an illness. With Boudicca's defeat, the island was firmly under Roman control, and Nero could cancel his plans to abandon it. Importantly, while Boudicca's treatment may have been the catalyst for the revolt, it was not the only reason. Communities of settled veterans had been treating the local Britons appallingly, seeing themselves as better than the barbarians and able to inflict whatever tortures they wanted on them without fear of reprisal. The current soldiers were hardly going to punish Roman veterans for such trivial acts as enslaving a few Britons. And then the temple to Claudius, built at Colchester, upset many Britons, particularly as they were expected to pay for the thing. It seems a feature of occupying armies that they're not satisfied only with defeating their enemies, they must really rub their faces in it by making them pay for the monuments of their defeat. The treatment of the people living under Roman rule who weren't Romans varied greatly. The Greeks, for example, were held in relatively high esteem for their culture, but for most people it seems they were held in contempt and considered barbarians until the Romans turned up to civilise them. For many provinces, it seems their treatment depended on the governor. Some were greedy, some were diligent. But also many different people held different rights, and indeed anyone in the empire could become a Roman citizen, and this was often used as a reward for loyal service to the empire. The emperor Caracalla actually made every free person in the Roman empire a citizen in 2012, but this was mainly because citizens paid more tax. Incidentally, Caracalla is another emperor to take his name for an item of clothing, in his case, a Gallic cloak that he took to wearing. Also, it has been argued that focusing on the specific wrongs done to Boudicca is only to draw attention from what was really happening. Roman historians blamed the individual and low-ranking officials in Britannia for the evil deeds, stealing Boudicca's possessions and attacking her family. What was actually happening was the kingdom of the Iceni was being incorporated into the province, a move which obviously would have met with opposition. The Roman historians do not focus on this, as they don't like to paint the empire as an aggressive monster, consuming its allies for no good reason. In their version of events, mistakes were made by insignificant Romans. This led to a revolt, which they had to put down, and at some point along the way their land became part of the empire, but don't think about that too much. Indeed, it's hard to imagine that the other tribes of the island would have been so upset over the mistreatment of Boudicca. Surely it would have taken long-standing grievances they'd all suffered as well as a threat to their independence. In the aftermath of the Roman victory, there were, of course, reprisals against the Britons. They stretched far beyond the tribes that had actually fought the Romans. Anyone thought to have been not sufficiently loyal was punished. The terror that Suetonius levelled on the British people was so great that the financial minister of the island actually wrote to the emperor complaining of his colleagues' behaviour, not because he sympathised with the plight of the native Britons, but because the ongoing hostilities prevented the minister from collecting taxes.
This would not be the last British revolt against Roman rule, but none other has so captured the imagination of the public. So, that's it for this week. Next week, Richard moves on to Hadrian and his wall, the crisis of the 3rd century and the events that led to the Romans leaving Britain. For this week, I have some thanks to donators. To David, Bill, Matthew, Robert and John, Jennifer, Neil, Alan, David and William. Good luck everyone and have a great week. <laughs>